0: Welcome to New Books in French Studies. I am Salvador Lopez Rivera, and today I will be having a conversation with Dr. Max Smith. Uh, Dr. Max Smith holds a career development fellowship in French at Queen's College, Oxford. His research broadly concerns the ephemeral and contemporary French culture and the intersections of media and the body. His first book, *Paris and the Parasite, uses the figure of the parasite to examine how marginalized people, non-human life, and noise have been pathologized in French urbanism. He has published articles on Camus' La Peste, street arts engagement with the 1871 Paris Commune, and most recently the YouTube subgenre of parkour fails. He's currently starting his second monograph, which focuses on rehearsal and contemporary French language theater, not as preparation for a work of art, but as an aesthetic object in its own right. The project builds on his experiences with Princeton's La Bon Seine French theater program during his PhD. And in conjunction with this research, he last year launched an annual series of French theater master classes at Queens College. So um, welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Max Smith. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Salvador. Um, so we will be talking today about Paris in the Press Side, um, your first book that came out with the MIT Press in 2021. And um, my first question really was uh, about the inspiration for this book, you know, how the project came into being, um, what was some of the issues you were thinking through as you were, uh, you know, writing this book,
1: Yeah. Uh, so this book grew out of my PhD thesis at Princeton. Um, and so I started working on it in earnest around 2013, 2014. So it was about eight years between then and, uh, the publication of the book. Um, I think in retrospect, in a lot of ways it was responding to that moment, right? Um, that was a period in the heart of the series of international protest movements. Um, the anti-austerity protests, Occupy, Indiados, the the Arab Spring, the Twitter revolutions, all of these kind of surprisingly large-scale, decentralized political movements centered around urban space uh, that seem to be engaging in a new way with digital media, um, social media, uh, and that in the process seem to be saying something about how urban politics was changing in contact with new technologies. So is that going on? I think in retrospect, this was probably also the period of like peak optimism about virality and social media. Um, the idea that, you know, kind of anybody can produce a tweet that through the ladies of the network will find an audience of two million people, uh, which gave rise to quite utopian um, interpretations about the democratizing influence of social media. Um, the idea that power wasn't just being redistributed, but that, um, to borrow the title of a Moises Nine book, that we're witnessing the end of power. Uh, so that was kind of the, um, the backdrop for my first reading of Michel Serres' Le Parasite, The Parasite. Um, and I, just, I was really struck by how this book, which was published in 1980, um, how much it seemed to be speaking to that political moment. Uh, And we'll get into the details of Dale's thought over the course of this conversation, but just on a general level, he encourages us to think less about individuals than about network systems and how information and messages pass through those systems, how they're transformed by those systems. Uh, There's this idea that systems are noisier than we might uh, like to think of them, that noise and disorder are not Uh, accidents that arise sometimes but that they're intrinsic to systems and that we should be open to that disorder in some way. Um, And there's also an argument about power, that uh, centralized power is not all that it's cracked up to be, that real power lies at the margins. And that all, I think, seemed to speak to this moment of these massive uh, political movements that in some cases had the power to topple authoritarian regimes. The other thing about sales work that really spoke to me um i knew going into the project that i wanted to write something about street art and graffiti Uh, this was also the period when street art was moving into the mainstream banksy's exit through the gift shop was 2010 i think uh there were loads of street art exhibitions in paris and it was proliferating throughout the city Uh, and it seemed to me another manifestation of this kind of collective seizure of the urban media system on the When I started to think about street art through the lens of Seth's Parasite, what really stood out to me was how present the language and imagery of biological parasitism was in the images that you saw on the walls, things like black rats, um, and also in the way people would talk about street art. Uh, It's very easy to find newspaper articles even today that talk about a plague of street art or street art as a disease that needs to be eradicated. And that made me start to think again about the ways that hygiene and public health have been intertwined with urban politics for centuries. Um, And I realized that what Serre brings to uh, thinking about the city is not just this new way of thinking about the power that lies at the margins, um, but also a way of putting communication, politics, and um, biology and hygiene side by side. And that this project was going to be about the prejudices and assumptions we bring to our idea of what makes a healthy city, and and was going to be interrogating some of those assumptions.
0: Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm really fascinated by the role that uh, Michel Serre uh, plays in your book. Um, the way I found out about Michel Serre was by reading um, the writings of Bruno Latour. You know, who also writes about like networks and, and systems. But I really like how. Uh, he talks about the figure of the parasite, um, its role in um, networks, systems, like you mentioned. Um, so I was just wondering, uh, you know, uh, what the role of Michel Serre uh, would be in this project? Uh.
1: Yeah, it's very important to it. Um, so it's it's not... In the end, my um, way of thinking about the parasite is not just an application of Serre. You also find a lot of references to the parasite in Jacques Derrida's work, Um, and, you know, there's plenty of interesting theory, biopolitical theory um, that doesn't necessarily use the term parasite all over the place. Um, I think what Serre brings is um, first that kind of, as I said, that way of putting communication, politics, and hygiene side by side. Uh, He has an idea of the quasi object. So for him, it's very important not to, the, to think about the ways that subjectivity circulates. So within a group, how um, uh, it's not just one person speaking, but that their speech is then passed off to somebody else. And that together that produces something that's kind of cacophonous, but also kind of meaningful. Um, so both of those are, are kind of key ideas that I took from Ser. I think the frustrating thing that you sometimes find with Ser is that He's so systemic that he can be kind of agnostic about um, politics in general or who who has power. Um, it's not a kind of prescriptive text. It's not really as much on the side of the parasite as I might make it seem in, in my introduction.
0: Yeah, uh, no, that's really, really interesting. Um...
1: I was also,
0: um, you know, really fascinated by your use of media theory because, you know, when I think of the city, when I think of urbanism, I guess I think of it more like in concrete terms, you know. And then you mentioned, for example, that Paris uh, at one point was going to label itself as a smart city, Um, you know, and all that entail, like all the technological changes that it entails. So I was also uh, wondering about the role of uh, media theory uh, and that connection to urbanism that maybe doesn't seem that um, evident for uh, us at first.
1: Yeah, so there's loads of um, work on this subject. Um, People like Scott McGuire, who has a book called The Media City about Paris, Um, Shannon Mattern, was a camera, a code and Clay is the beginning of the title of the book. But so what, what I really like about both of their approaches to the media theory of the city is that it's not just uh, it doesn't take computers to be um, the moment when cities became mediatic. I mean, when we move through the city today, we encounter we encounter loads of messages. We encounter billboards, screens, um, you know, many it's it's not uncommon to find walls with embedded screens that change and display advertisements. Um, so moving through the city is to move through a space replete with messages. Uh, and there are lots of kind of, um, terms that emerged towards the end of the 20th century and that continue to merge that, uh, give the impression that there's been some kind of revolution thanks to digital technology, uh, and that cities have only recently become mediatic. So things like the smart city, as you mentioned, uh let's see how many of them I can think of, cyber cities, utopias. I mean, there's loads of terms like this that uh, give the impression that um, digital media made cities mediatic, but actually they've been like that for centuries. You know, um, Kittler, the German media theorist, has an essay called The City as a Media System, um, or The City as a Medium, rather, uh, in which he talks about how cities became Centers for processing information, that the bureaucracy was condensed, uh, was concentrated in the city, that cities are places that bring resources in and transform them and turn them into something else. So, if you approach media theory from a kind of Kittlerian um, perspective or a McLuhan influenced perspective, where it's not just about um, screens, but about information being transformed as it moves through uh, some kind of environment, and I think it becomes possible to see. Uh, all kinds of aspects of the city through a media theoretical lens walking through the city becomes a kind of experience of information being transformed. Thank you.
0: And then um, I was also thinking about the choice of uh, Paris, you know, as a media city, especially because there's such a long history of um, representations of Paris. uh, So much work that has been done on, um, you know, the uh, significance of Paris as a city. So, um, I was wondering what it was like to like uh, go through some of these archives, maybe to read about the history of the city, um, you know, just uh, Paris as a choice uh, for, for your book.
1: Yeah. Um, if I'm being completely honest, uh, I came to, I chose Paris because I wanted to work on Paris. <laughs> um, it wasn't kind of evaluating all of the cities in the world and choosing the Paris was the best example. Um, but as you said, Paris fits with these themes. Incredibly well. It has a long history of being approached through this kind of um, maybe not being approached through a media theoretical lens, but being a site for the experimentation with new media, um, the way in which telegraph technology, different ways of sending messages were uh, embedded into the fabric of Paris in the 19th century. Um, so it's a really interesting city in those terms. And it's also been mediated so much in other forms. There's so many films and novels set in Paris, and the way that people think about Paris and experience Paris often passes through um, an imagined Paris that they've uh, experienced textually or their memories of the city kind of, um, I don't know, build up alongside these these imagined Parises. Um, and so it's a really, I don't know, it's a really exciting city from that perspective i think i also so much has been written about paris in the 19th century and um today paris is uh, sometimes derisively referred to as a museum city that it has kind of lost that uh identity as a playground for new ideas and new technologies and it's just become a uh that it's now it's just about preserving its own past and I, I wanted to talk about um Contemporary Paris as as a vibrant place that is still uh, engaging with media in a new and exciting way.
0: Yeah, and I'm especially struck by the idea that Paris, you know, is a museum city. I think um, it's really interesting in your book that you trace some of the changes that Paris has gone through. For example, with the uh, Osmond transformations of the city, right? When the boulevards... Um, were made and the old town was um, raised to the ground. Um, so some of these uh, transformations, I think, have been going on for longer than people realize. Like there always has been some kind of effort to um, neutralize Paris, if that makes sense. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, certainly. I think um, the, the other thing that Osman uh, embodies this this very centralized approach to paris, and so I think you know thinking parasitically about paris is um quite interesting in that respect because there's such a long tradition of thinking about the center and the periphery and thinking about um, a small group of planners who are imposing a vision on paris um, and Osman really kind of destabilizes those or sorry um serre really destabilizes those hierarchies and so it's really interesting from that perspective as well and um I will
0: also, um, not to change uh, too much the topic, but I wanted to uh, go back to the structure of your book, because I really love the um, the way the chapters are um, centered around the uh, concepts such as apartment, wall, street, uh, bodies, underground. So you kind of have like this physical um, spaces in Paris. Um, as I was, um, you know, just reading the book and looking at the chapter structures, I was reminded of, for example, um, Gaston Bachelard, you know, the Poetics of Space. Well, he also goes like around the room, like talking about objects. So I was wondering if you could speak a little for uh, about the structure of your book, um, you know, how it came.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, so my direct inspiration was... Georges Perec's Espèce d'espace, Species of Spaces. Um, Because there too, it's a kind of series of essays or fragments about different spaces. But it starts from private space and then kind of expands until I think it ends with the cosmos. Um, And so I wanted the book to chart a trajectory in that way so that it would start with apartment and the domestic and the private and think about how the subject is cut off from the rest of the world um, and then moved to the wall and eventually to the street. And it kind of draws you out from private space into public space. And then, as you said, so there's bodies, which is sort of a an out-of-place chapter, and then the underground, which the idea is that if it starts with this horizontal movement from the inside to the outside, that the underground destabilizes that by introducing the vertical axis. And so it you know makes it a bit harder to think about where's inside and where's outside and which direction you go to find other people. So yeah, I I wanted there to be that movement over the course of the book. I also uh, wanted to avoid um, separating those spaces too rigidly. Like I wanted it to be very fluid. And so uh, each chapter ends with a discussion of a topic that really belongs in the previous chapter and, or ends with the discussion of a topic that really b- belongs in the next chapter and, and begins with something that belongs in the previous chapter. So yeah, it's, I, I think in, at one point in the introduction, maybe I referred to it as heat maps, but in my head, that's how it was that it was kind of, there's certain ideas that are concentrated in private space, but of course, all of these things bleed out into the rest of the city.
0: Um, Yeah, and then um, I was also thinking, you know, in regards to the chapter structure, that like um, your corpus, you know, all the materials that you look at are so diverse, but um, yeah, they still like gather around the same idea. Um, Then uh, in the chapter apartment, um, I was fascinated by how you critique some of uh, Le Corbusier's uh, ideas, right? So the link between architecture and ideology. So this like... Absolute individualism that Le Corbusier was kind of uh, promoting with his architecture design and then some of the links to um, fascism and anti-Semitism. So I wonder if you could speak about the that critique, you know, that you make between like architecture and um, ideology in uh, that chapter apartment.
1: Yeah, um, so I might uh, approach it kind of indirectly with some of the ideas that you find at the end of the book, because uh, I think, um, so I engage a fair amount with Roberto Esposito's writings about community and immunity, and I think that those really help understand my point of view on Nicole Bussier. Um So Esposito talks about the munus, the root of immunity and community, which uh, he says were duties that uh, one had to carry out in ancient Roman society in order to enjoy the benefits of belonging to uh, the political community. Um, Whereas immunity was a state where you uh, were exempted from those duties, but still got to enjoy the benefits. Uh, And Esposito talks about modern politics, basically from Hobbes onward as being a gradual process of immunization, that recognizing the ways in which we're all kind of indebted to each other and owe things to each other and open to each other and vulnerable to each other. Uh, the political theory tends towards cutting off those openings um, and vulnerabilities and building the autonomy of the subject. And so there's this movement towards atomism, towards autonomy um, that he describes as immunization. And that kind of peaks with the theory of the immune system which gives a kind of biological justification for this by showing that the body uh, recognizes its borders and protects them. Um, And he also has an argument about fascism, which is that he sees Nazism as being the natural endpoint of this um, immunizing tendency, that if you set out to eliminate all potential contact with alterity and seal yourself off from all of the communal risks of the world, that you end up with genocide as being a kind of state program of uh, erasure of any form of otherness. Um, And so, yeah, coming back to Le Corbusier, the history I sort of trace over the course of this chapter called Apartment is from a relatively chaotic Paris where there are lots of spaces of mixing um, towards a city that's increasingly um, atomized where um, yeah, there's less emphasis on infrastructure and on communal spaces and more on the home as a place where all of your needs can be met. And Le Corbusier, to me, embodies that idea that the home is, um, as he says, a kind of machine space um, that serves all of your needs, that you don't have to go out. Um, he has this huge suspicion of public space, shared space, which he tends to talk about in disease terms. He talks about. Um, cafe terraces as being a fungus that are eating away at, um, at the street. Um, you know, there's this real kind of, uh, informatic efficiency focused way of thinking about urban life in Le Corbusier's writing. And for me, that dovetails with, um, criticisms that have emerged of him in the past, or at least come to the fore in the past, um, few years, 10 years, however long it's been now, uh, that they're, really is a conceptual link between Le Corbusier's antisocial architecture and uh, his avowed antisemitism and his work um, in favor of eugenics during the Vichy regime. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's the link I see between Le Corbusier and, and Esposito, that, that he participates in this trend towards cutting off the individual from society that ultimately leads to this kind of genocidal moment in the middle of the, of the 20th century, and that he enacts that through, that you can see the traces of that through his architecture. I think for me,
0: um, it was especially interesting reading this critique of Le Corbusier after um, last summer I had a chance to go to La Cité Radius in Marseille and um i remember during the tour uh, it was emphasized about how it was such a revolutionary housing project because there was like a community inside so they had their own shops their own um schools um but um i was also told that uh, these apartments were very unaffordable nowadays so that got me thinking about like maybe the other side of uh Le that, um, yeah. know, i mean in
1: some ways the rhetoric he uses is so kind of community focused but I think the term is um, Rue Intérieure for the corridors in the Cité Radieuse, the idea that the streets have been moved inside the building, which you could look at as being a manifestation, as you said, of this like communal spirit. But it also, by moving everything that those people need into the building, then you take away any need for them to go out into the rest of the world. And all of that kind of space of encounter and surprise then disappears. And if the apartments um, community is homogenous, which is easy to, to, uh, do through making the rent too expensive, as you said, um, then something of that social mixity is really lost.
0: Yeah. So it was, um, you know, just interesting to think about that in, in relation to, um, La Cité Radius. And then something else that I was thinking as, as you were talking about, the Le Corbusier and then Esposito and the concept of immunity, uh, immunity, sorry, um, is uh, what it was like to have this book come out during the uh, background of the COVID-19 epidemic, you know, because I imagine you saw a lot of the discourses that you studied, uh, like, come to the surface again, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, definitely. Um, So what was the experience like, you know, of looking at your work and then looking at what's happening um, with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, well, the manuscript went to the editor April 2020, Um, so the last month of work on it was, um, during, uh, the first lockdown in Britain, um, and I was very tempted to write a kind of quick epilogue about what was going on. And I held back because I thought I have absolutely no perspective on any of these things right now, but yeah, it, it, um, it's hard for me to, um, I can only kind of speak to what was happening in, in Britain because that's where I live. Um, but here it was—it's kind of striking how um, how much this language of like architectural imagery and and private space um, was present in the way people responded to COVID. Right? Is the the main order in Britain was stay at home. Um, it was so much about kind of closing yourself off from uh, communal spaces, about focusing on your private space and the kind of death of the networks and spaces of encounter, which like, certainly makes sense from a quarantine perspective. But there's also, um, I think what looking at COVID through Ser brings to the fore is that you can never really separate the kind of biological parasitism from the social and political questions, from hospitality, from communication. Um, I find it interesting how uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like it was a real leveler, that everybody was experiencing this together, that... Uh, Even the most powerful people in society could get ill. And then very quickly it began to, it became clear that um, uh, it was not agnostic about inequality um, and that some people were much more exposed to the virus and much more likely to suffer from the effects of COVID than others. And that those kinds of like holistic uh, problems or the way that um, some people were prejudicially affected by the disease um, in the sense that they were working jobs where they weren't allowed to stay home or in, in living situations where they didn't have a home to stay in, um, that those kinds of things, I don't know, sound brings those kinds of problems to the fore. Um, and it's also interesting to think about, how, about all of the misinformation around COVID and how that noise contributed to the spread of the virus and how, that communi- how those communication questions interact with um, the spread of the biological parasite.
0: Yes, yes, it does. Um, And um, I wanted to go back about what you said about the COVID uh, epidemic being kind of like the illusion of kinship, right? So it's something that we think uh, everybody is going through together. But in reality, like it also reflects social inequalities that already exist. And from then, I kind of want to segue into the chapter uh, titled Street, because speak about the situationists right and um some some of them did some really interesting projects of walking around the city um they were searching for different ways of engaging with the city that maybe were more um egalitarian you know like to appreciate the city for its community the community offers but at the end maybe it didn't work out that way so i was wondering if you could speak about the
1: Situationists uh in that chapter of street yeah i have huge sympathy for Situationist International, Um, and yeah, I think a lot of the book, you could see it through the lens of searching for these kinds of Situationist practices that have the ability to, that anybody can participate in, that invite all people to think of themselves as urbanists or having some kind of aesthetic agency in the city. and that encourage you to break out of routines and to encounter um, other people in other situations than those that you're accustomed to. Um, So yeah, in the chapter, I I start by talking about the kind of classic situationist practice of the dérive and the psychogeographic map and the ways that they used walking um, to identify subconscious barriers in the city and to try and break through them. Um, And a tradition of French literature uh, that in different ways carries on that practice. So the two authors that I focus on are Jacques Reda, his text Le Meridien de Paris, um, where he tries to follow the Paris meridian um, from north to south, uh, across the city on foot, and uh, Philippe Vassé's Un Livre Blanc, where he tries to visit all the blank zones in one of the maps of Paris to see what it is that can't be represented. So in both of those cases, there's this idea that you give yourself a rule that's going to force you to walk in places that you wouldn't walk normally. Um, and that in the process, they discover all of these um, either subconscious forces or kind of literal barriers that uh structure their experience of the city and that they weren't conscious of normally. Things like at one point Jacques Claydat is trying to find all of these little plaques that mark the path of the Paris Meridian. And one of them's in a private courtyard, so he has to break into these, into this private courtyard if he wants to see it. Um, and he has a line like, you know, it's outrageous that you can privatize the Paris Meridian. Um, so it's things like that that kind of encourage you to break free from your routines in a and and to um, and hopefully to come into contact with other people in the process. A lot of essays text is that he finds he finds that a lot of these spaces are occupied by. Um, homeless people or migrants um, needed no idea that they were living in this neighborhood uh, because this space was as invisible to him as it is to the map. Yeah. So definitely there's,
0: um, you know, some attempts of like conceptualizing the city as a place that is like, it has potential, you know, to include everybody. Like it forces you to like interact with other people. And then they come to the realization that it's not as um, straightforward as that, um, I was also struck by, um, you know, the way you mentioned street art and especially parkour in this chapter, um, parkour for me, um, you know, your critique of it was very new because, uh, all I knew about it was, uh, it was something, you know, that, um, teenagers, young people did, um, in big cities like Paris. I didn't know that it had origins in like a more middle-class setting. Um, and then I didn't think about like accessibility and, um, all the discourses that it promotes some of its origins um, and maybe like uh, discourses of the body, you know, training the body for uh, uh, fascist purposes, for example. So um, yeah, I was just uh, wondering if you could speak about the um, street art and uh, parkour um, in this chapter.
1: Yeah. I, so I also came to parkour thinking of it as I think most people do as um either something really countercultural, which is an impression that comes from um French films produced by Luc Besson in the early two thousands, um, or as something kind of, I don't know, silly and and dumb that teenagers like to do um that you find in the viral videos. Um, Parkour. So initially, I, I was really attracted to parkour as a kind of solution to the situation as problem. Um, there's a moment in Bassett's book where he runs into some people climbing on buildings, and he tries to uh, find some common ground with them and explain that the, proce- the practices that they're doing of trying to explore the city in a new way are really similar to his exploration of the blank spaces of the map. And they kind of fail to find that common ground. But I thought, oh, this is perfect connection, and parkour has this. You know, it's like the situation is dérive and that it encourages you to move through the city differently, to go to places that you wouldn't uh, explore normally. Um, But it's super popular and it's spread around the world and loads of people do it and it's really cool. And so it seems to solve that problem that the situation has found of the practice kind of never breaking past the boundaries of a small intellectual group then in looking into the history yeah i mean I, I think i started by thinking like well if parkour if you really want to take parkour as utopian practice then what are the limits of that and there are obvious problems with um what kinds of bodies can um do parkour um uh if you know so i mean if i could back up a little in the films that Luc Besson produced um Le yamakazi uh from 2001 i think and the Bonlieu 13 films i think the first one came out in 2006. um in those films the image that you get of parkour is they're set in the suburbs really disadvantaged neighborhoods really multi-ethnic uh diverse protagonists who um are in a situation where they shouldn't have any kind of mobility social or otherwise but parkour allows them to break out of the boundaries of their community and they become kind of robin hood figures who In the banlieue 13 films which are very (laughs) implausible action movies uh they end up smoking cigars with the president uh who expresses his debt to uh france's minorities because of the work they've done so there's this really utopian image of parkour as something that will allow you to break out of um of uh a difficult milieu um and so, yeah, thinking about, you know, what that means in practice, like, obviously, there, there are limits to who's able to do that. I mean, who's able to climb up the side of a building um, and really how much practical uh, benefit you gain from climbing up the side of the building. Looking into the history of it, you find um, that Bakour, uh emerged from ebertisme, uh, which is a form of obstacle, cor- obstacle course Training developed for the French military in World War One uh, by a naval officer named Georges Hébert, uh, who had been in um the West Indies with the French Navy and had seen uh colonized subjects there doing exercising in nature. And he just had this kind of discovery that the problem with French physical fitness was that it happened in gyms and it was so artificial, and that uh he, if, if French men could get back to exercising in these virile natural environments, then they would rediscover their natural force. Um, and as you can imagine, this uh, rhetoric really appealed to French fascists um, for whom it represented a kind of another dimension of the retour à la terre, um, rediscovering the like natural virility this kind of fetishism of the male athletic body um, and so it was depl- it was made part of the national physical fitness regime during Vichy um, and it was kind of indirectly through that that uh, this guy David bed's father uh, discovered it and passed on the principles to his son who then adapted them to the to his suburban environment uh, outside of Paris um, And so, yeah, I was just kind of surprised to find that this thing that has this really countercultural reputation that seems to be an almost dissident practice, um, its roots are in something that's um, very compatible with authoritarian uh, power. Um, And so, yeah, it it, it then coming back to the parasite, um, it's really interesting to see that on the one hand with parkour, uh, if you look at its representation in popular culture, like in uh, video games, oftentimes it's associated with disease. Like in the Dying Light video games, um, you, you do parkour to escape zombies. Um, in the Assassin's Creed video games, as the the main characters can do parkour, but uh, their parkour abilities somehow result in brain disease. Um And so there's this kind of sense of it being contagious. You even find it in the medical literature of fear that if kids watch the videos of parkour, they'll start doing it and they'll break their ankles. So it's almost a contagious ankle breaking syndrome. Um, And then alongside that, like contagious countercultural image is this fascist rhetoric of the perfected male body and uh, the need to purify the French race um, and this uh, racist fetishization of... um, the athletic power of colonized subjects in Martinique. So yeah, it's a really, I don't know. it um, It's too simplistic to say that parkour is secretly fascist, but it's, it's really interesting how this practice ends up um, occupying both sides of that polarity as being a kind of contagious dissident countercultural thing and also being, um, uh, having all these problematic undertones. Yes
0: and um especially when uh when you mentioned the representations of, of parkour you know in um, media and video games but also in uh, film you know you associated with uh youth with like uh, people of color you know with this like more urban environment and then um your book you mentioned how like parkour associations actually want to like remove themselves from from those images so that kind of contributes to like shattering the illusion that it's um, it could be utopian in a sense. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's also a point of convergence with street art, this like reputation of being inherently countercultural, but also this huge desire among many of the people practicing it to um, be accepted by the mainstream, to have institutional approval. So parkour, you know, class, the classic image of it is people illegally practicing it in the suburbs of Paris. And then when they renovated Léal in the exact center of Paris, they included a parkour gym with padded walls and training equipment. So there's this kind of what was um, this unruly suburban outdoor practice then becomes like an extreme sport like any other that happens in a gym, in a padded environment, in the very center with sponsorship from the uh, mairie.
0: Yeah, so there's definitely a conflict, right, between like uh, these activities that have the potential to be more uh, inclusive, to like get people to engage with cities in a different way, with urban spaces in a different way. But then um, they start getting maybe like institutionalized or they get discourses of the, um, you know, the parasite uh, in them. And from there, I wanted to go to the chapter about bodies uh, where you discuss, um, for example, uh, this uh, collective, right, known as Nuit de So, like, uh, as you mentioned, it's part of, like, that time period where there was a lot of optimism about social movements in the city, like Occupy, the Arab Spring, um, you know, just this potential people to come together into this urban space to make political demands. But alongside that, there's, like, this tension where, like, once we become a recognized group, so once we have a name, um, you know, we're kind of neutralized in a way. Some of the edge is removed. So I was just wondering about your experience of, like, studying these contemporary movements in relation to, like, urbanism and the parasite.
1: Yeah, um, so I think what really struck me in reading newspaper coverage of Nuit Debout um, was the recurring idea that it was a movement that made no demands and had nothing to say. Um, there's several examples of commentators saying, oh, it's a silent movement or what distinguishes it is it's not a movement, it's stasis. It doesn't make demands, it's silent. Um, which is kind of crazy when you look at the efforts they went to to make sure everybody could understand um, what the group was saying and how thoroughly they tried to imitate um, kind of classic deliberative democratic politics. I mean they had Dubu as a movement had, a um a general assembly with strict rules about um trying to control people's noise right so you don't clap you do a gesture so it's silent and everybody can hear the person speaking um, there was an idea that anybody could speak but you know you would have it was uh, a limit to the amount of time you would have and that when vo- when measures were voted on they had to be passed at a substantial margin so there was a sense of unanimity um, behind each resolution that was taken. And then they had uh, Radio Debout and um, and other platforms that they created to uh, stream news from uh, the movement and bypass traditional media uh, so that people would be able to um, hear what they were asking for directly from the movement. And all of that effort seems to have been for nothing because um, the traditional media... Um, institutions and the political institutions um, pleaded ignorance about what the movement had to say. One way of looking at that is that it was just kind of bad faith and of course they aren't going to engage with it. But um, I think like what Serh encourages you to think about in that context is that uh, you can't um, force a message to make it through the system unharmed. You can't force somebody to hear what you have to say. Everything is exposed to the noise in the channel and you can't eliminate the noise from the channel, uh, and so I, I wanted to think about that perception of Debu as silent, uh, not just as a kind of bad faith refusal to engage, but as um, as uh, as as a problem for how you how you do street politics um, when your interlocutors refuse to listen to you. There's a passage in Zainab Tufakshi's book Twitter and Tear Gas, where she um, talks about how kind of in the olden days, authoritarian repressive governments, when they didn't like dissident speech, would censor it and try and silence it. And in that context, thinking parasitically, you know, there's something very utopian about the parasite because this dissident speech can never be silenced. Its traces will always persist. That noise will always make it into the system. But um, Tufakshi writes that modern-day repressive governments have learned the lesson that you don't need to silence dissident speech, you just have to flood... The medium with noise. So I think Steve Bannon gave us the phrase "flood the zone with shit," um, and that if there's so much noise, then nobody will know. Nobody will be able to pick out the signal from it, and that's far more effective than trying to to silence people. Um, and so, thinking in that kind of context, right? Like for a movement like Nuit Debout, if the state decides that its response to you is going to be um, to flood the zone with noise. Uh, I mean one of the things I talk about is the conviction by people who participated in Moudiou that the French police um, systematically refused to uh, arrest or detain casseurs um, so that they would continue to disrupt the movement and throw rocks at police, and that then people could say, "Oh no, it's all turned into a riot. Uh, we need to intervene and shut things up." Um, so this, this if if the context is that. Um, your speech is going to be met with noise. Then what do you do as a political movement? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, especially um,
0: that idea of like uh, you know the state not having to silence people anymore, but uh, um, you know uh, disrupting a movement by noise. It kind of reminded me of um, the protests in Hong Kong a few years ago, the Umbrella Revolution, because I remember people made uh, an app uh, that kind of that didn't. Require Wi-Fi to communicate with each other, you know. So it was kind of an effort to like find um, alternative ways of communicating with each other to avoid repression by the state. So I just see some um,
1: similarities there. Um also yeah, one. Another, um, sorry. Um, guess this, um, yeah, another parallel that I I draw in the book is to um, the standing man in Turkey. So after, uh, I think it was during the Gezi Park protests, um, the police claimed that people had been shouting offensive slogans as a justification for clearing the park. Um, And so to counter this, uh, performance artists went into the square and just stood silently and then hundreds of people came and joined them. On the one hand, it's kind of a great demonstration of this parasitic idea that uh, the state tries to silence you, but you still find a way of making the traces of the protest heard. But on the other hand, if your solution is to, to adopt silence as a strategy, um, then it does seem to play into the hands of those who are oppressing you. So, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, yeah,
0: yeah, it's really tricky. Um, brings me back to uh, um, something that you mentioned in that chapter, which is uh, Jacques Rancière's idea that, like, in order to be heard, a group must have boundaries inevitably. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's something that maybe we see time and time again, whereas you need some kind of like institutional, uh, arrangement, or maybe just some kind of uh, way of making your group visible in order to like make demands. Uh, otherwise it becomes very, very difficult.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Orancier at one point, um, uses the image that a group needs to Emerge from the nether regions of noise and um, adopt a voice that can be heard, or something like that. So, there's this idea that, um, yeah, that groups need to um, coalesce around an identity, that they need to make the boundaries of that identity clear, they need to unite around a voice. And that's often used as a way to discredit protest movements. I mean, with Occupy, it was a common thing to say, well, you know, there's no demands, everything is everybody just makes it about whatever they want it to be about. And so there's nothing for us to respond to. We don't have a responsibility to engage with this, uh, movement. But then on the other hand, like, um, that was part of the point of Occupy. I mean, the idea of the, we are the 99% uh, viral campaign was for anybody to be able to, um, express their solidarity with the movement write their own story and connection with the hashtag have a small platform in which they could express their version of what the movement was asking for i kind of think like why can't we have cacophonous political movements why do why do movements need to um i mean in in account of things why do they need to um Pull themselves out of this noise and come together around a voice and make their boundaries clear, shouldn't we be able to listen to them in a way that can make something that, um, that appreciate you know, that that uh uses cacophony as a way to bring people together? Isn't that another way of, isn't that a kind of communication that we can engage with?
0: Yeah, so there's this like,
1: um, you know, just appreciation
0: for like noise or more like effective ways of expressing concerns, right? Other than just this. Simple articulation of like this is who we are. This is what we want. When in reality things are not as as simple as that, and like there's multiple um, things to complain about, multiple angles uh, to approach um, social justice from.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, I think you know, in the way that people talk about these movements, the burden is always kind of put on the on the collective that it's that you know, in in Ranciere's thought. Um, making yourself visible to the political community is always a kind of miraculous act, but you, you just have to do it. You have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and do it somehow. Um, And I wanted towards the end of my book to think about the act of listening, you know, not just about um, the responsibility that is imposed on people to come together and make their voice intelligible, but on the ways in which um, the rest of the community can listen um, and try and make sense of their, Speech without, you know, kind of forcing the other to to uh, force them to listen. Yes, and um,
0: from there, uh, wanted kind of to segue into your next chapter, which is uh, underground. Um, so you talk about uh, a lot of things in there, like uh, Jacques Derrida's notion of hospitality, and then uh, you mention uh, Rosie post posthuman feminism. But as I read the chapter, the thing that um, stayed the most with me was your analysis of Rachid Bougetra's novel, Topography uh, Ideal Pour Une um, Aggression caractérisée. this uh, novel where uh, you have an immigrant who cannot um, speak French, right? So he has to, uh, so he misinterpret signs because of that. Um, so you go into like the... Uh, you know, the meaning of those signs, the meaning of space when you're not uh, aware of the culture around you. So I was just wondering if you could speak more about that uh, chapter. Sorry if I'm not being too uh, cohesive here.
1: No, you are and And thank you for saying that about um, my reading of the book. It's an amazing novel. I really recommend it um, for people who haven't read it. So yeah, the setup is that the um, there's this migrant who has come to Paris from North Africa, and he not only doesn't speak french but he doesn't speak arabic he speaks a kind of dialect that means that he has absolutely no possibility of communicating with anyone in a language that he'll understand and so he's kind of lost in the metro he doesn't understand what the signs are telling him he doesn't understand what the network is asking of him um, and so the whole novel he just wanders through the system until finally um, at the end he Manages to get to his destination, but as soon as he does, he's murdered by a racist gang. Um, So it's quite a pessimistic book, but a really uh, beautiful text about um, the relationship between language and otherness and hospitality. Uh, And that really beautifully illustrates the ideas that you find in Derrida's work on hospitality. Um, And so, yeah, in in that chapter, I'm kind of trying to draw a link between um, the parasite and Um, uh, the Barbaros in Derrida's thought. So this kind of other, the absolute other who doesn't speak your language, the noise producing other, um, whose normal fate in in, um, hospitality in this kind of account that Derrida borrows from Emil Benveniste is that they're going to be put to death. Um, And so what other, in the chapter I'm trying to work out what other fates might've been possible for this migrant in Buchetre's novel. And what strikes me is that he, right, this character doesn't know how to read any of the signs around him, um, but he does engage in acts of reading. Right? He sees billboards and he doesn't get that, um, they're advertising uh, toilet roll, but he, there's passages where through indirect d- discourse, we kind of get his interpretation of what might be going on in this image. And maybe we're supposed to, maybe these are really cynical passages because he interprets it as a kind of um, uh, ritual act. Uh, The child who's in the bathroom and has undone all the toilet roll and has made a mess. Um, But, like, he's still reading. And so, um, yeah, in the chapter, I I try and distinguish between the sort of informatic, legible, kind of reading he's expected to do in the metro he's supposed to understand that this is a map that tells him how to get to here he's supposed to understand this is an advertisement that tells him to buy this That there's a clear message that's the correct interpretation of this information but then the alternative is a kind of literary reading of this network um where um you know borrowing from from um maurice blanchot also borrowing from um uh, William Paulson's book The Noise of Culture, where he has this idea that literary reading is reading where you don't distinguish between signal and noise, where everything is potentially signifying, that this, um, that maybe literarity offers some other way for this person to be in the system, that there's a different way of organizing information and thinking about your relationship to the information that the city provides you that maybe provides a more ethical outcome than what's depicted in Bouchetra's novel. Yes, and um
0: Going back to this um, idea of reading, um, I found uh, the discussion about the ethics of reading this novel really fascinating because of that. So in a sense, we can, uh, you know, the reader can be understood to be complicit. You know, he sees what the, uh, what this character is going through. So um, you're supposed to feel empathy. But then um, there was another reading of the novel where we're just, um, you know, rather than like, feeling empathy, we're just like um, entertaining ourselves with the story. So I was wondering if you could like um, talk about the ethics um, involved in reading that novel.
1: Yeah. Um, so the, the style for people who haven't read it is very um, modernist, very Joycean. Um, sentences that last several pages or that cut off in the middle. There's very little punctuation um, <clears throat> and so it can be really easy to get lost in the text and that seems to be um so one way of interpreting that is that we as the reader are experiencing what it's like for this migrant that we are struggling to make sense of the words that bouchard has supplied us with and that in the process we get a kind of experience of what it's like to be lost in the metro and to not find your way out um my problem with that interpretation is one it assumes that the novel is addressed to the white Parisian reader who knows the system. Um, two it actually for that reader, that reader is the least likely to um, feel to experience total disorientation. Like if you know the Paris Metro really well, you can retrace his steps pretty accurately. It's pretty easy to find out what mistakes he made and where he was at each given moment. The chapter sections are named by the line he's on. So it's not that difficult to imagine where he's making the connections and where he's getting lost. So it seems like the novel is least alienating to the people that we assume it's addressed to. Um, And so that idea that it's teaching us empathy for the disoriented migrant experience seems kind of problematic to me. Um, And of course, like in real terms, if you feel disoriented by this novel, you can just put it down and you don't have to continue with it. Whereas the character in the novel um, is going to die by the end of the day. So the stakes are wildly different. Uh, So in some way, I I understand why it's appealing to see it as um, a kind of performance of disorientation for the reader. But uh, I think it's important to bear in mind the differences between the reading experience we're having and the reading experience that the character is having. Yeah,
0: and um, I think that brings us back to, like, um, you know, the point that you make uh, throughout the book, right, that these things that, like, seem to democratize space, to, like, uh, maybe teach us about other um, potential uses of urban space, um, they do have that potential, but also they come short in, in different ways, Uh
1: Yeah, it's a a long narrative of my disappointment with things that I thought were really revolutionary. (laughs) It's one way to read it. Um, But yeah, I I think, um, uh, yeah, that's a good way of summarizing it.
0: Um, So um, I wanted to ask you about... um... Uh, your future directions uh, or projects, if there's anything you would like to share with us about, like um, you know, things uh, you might continue uh, that you explored in this project, or maybe you know, concepts that will uh, pop up again in your future work.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so the the work I've been doing that's most directly connected to this book is. Um, the book is really focused on on Paris. Um, there are a few passing references to situations in other cities, um, but really it's it's not even a kind of metropolitan France-focused book. It's a metropolitan Paris-focused book. Um, so I've been trying to think about how these ideas translate to other urban contexts, um, and particularly uh, colonial urban contexts, where, again, the kind of convergence of Hospitality, politics, um, communication, and hygiene um, is really important um, I mean looking at... So uh, Rashid Bouchetra has a novel, another novel um, called uh, Les Cargots I think it was the novel he published immediately after Topography, uh, which is about a um, municipal public health official in a North African city who's trying to kill all the rats. You get a lot of the same themes but if anything it's it's even more explicitly about the place of parasites in the city um because he's developing all of these poisons he understands himself to be carrying out a kind of genocide against the rats he would like to translate some of his genocidal tactics to the human population um and he's forced to question the foundations of that belief through his what turns out to be his love of rats and also his encounter with snails so these pests challenge his um his uh his commitment to this hygienic project um it's really interesting you know in in terms of how you translate these ideas it then poses questions about um about the applicable sorry (laughs) the applicability to the colonial context the epistemic violence of translating of of transposing ser to uh francophone africa um so I'm, i'm trying to think through those sorts of problems um after that um work is done so as as you said in the introduction my next project really is focused on theater um which is my other uh passion um has been a project i've been working towards for a long time um i think it's still this the idea of the next book is to think about to kind of take the covid situation in france um for theaters as a jumping off point. So this moment when, I think it was during the second lockdown, the second confinement in France, when in some theaters, the actors were allowed to go and rehearse, but spectators weren't allowed in the audiences. Um, So this moment where you can do theater, you can do the work of the theater, but you can't show it to anyone. Um, And I want to think more broadly about theater that isn't shown or things that call themselves theater, but don't have a spectacle or performance as their end goal, either theater's research or maybe even things like drama therapy. Um, Yeah. And in some ways that maybe seems quite far from, um, the themes in Paris and the parasite, but I think it still has to do with kind of the limits of mediation, things that leave traces, but don't necessarily leave a text for us to interpret. Um, you know, that idea of like a noisy background that isn't completely accessible. Um, the question of things, I don't know, just media theory in general, the ways during COVID a lot of theaters in, around the world had to use digital media as substitutes for the live experience. That poses questions about the relationship between technology and the body again. Um, so I think I'm, I'm still sticking with... Um, questions that revolve around ephemeral culture, the limits of mediation, and the relationship between technology and the body with this new project, but uh, going in a very different direction with it.
0: Thank you. I am um, really looking forward to that project. Um, Last summer, I had the opportunity to be in uh, Avignon when they had the theater festival. So I got to see a lot of the, um, you know, technical um, side of theater, all the rehearsals, all the publicity for, uh, you know, plays that they do over the festival. So I'm really, really looking forward to like, um, you know, exploring uh, aspects other than the performance. Uh,
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I, yeah, I have loved theater for a long time and eventually it dawned on me that what I really liked was the work that goes into it more than watching the shows. And so hopefully this is a project that will allow me to really spend time with the, aspects of theater that give me the most joy
0: uh well thank you so much um i think we might be short on time so um there's a lot of other things that i found interesting um in your book i learned a lot
1: thank you thank you (laughs) thank you for reading it
0: yeah thank you so much for coming
1: yeah it's been a pleasure thanks for the invitation